The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. If instead Putin doubles down, then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance. Sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster. We could have a massive miscalculation and we will then be in a full-scale war across the globe. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. It's been a weekend to forget for Rishi Sunak. The Chancellor has asked for a formal review into whether he properly declared his financial interests as he attempts to defuse a row over his family's tax affairs. This after it emerged that his millionaire wife Akshata Murthy holds non-DOM status and was legally avoiding UK taxes on her overseas income, though she says she'll now give up the status. In a letter to the Prime Minister, Sunak says that he wants to make sure all his interests were properly declared after facing pressure over the tax status. But Labour's Shadow Justice Secretary Steve Reid doesn't think that's enough. The tax burden on the British people is at the highest it's been for 70 years. We've had 15 tax hikes out of this government, and it really does concern people that ministers, instead of focusing on looking after the interests of the people they're elected to represent, are instead looking after themselves. Sunak's popularity has slumped since he was accused of not doing enough to help Britons facing a record decline in living standards. The Times reports that NHS managers want new measures to help spread the curb the, the help curb the spread of COVID. They're warning that hospitals face a brutal Easter. They say will be as bad as any winter. The NHS Confederation accused the government of abandoning any interest in COVID whatsoever. It's urging the public to wear masks in crowded spaces and to meet outdoors when possible. Last week, hospital patients who've tested positive for COVID rose to the highest level since February of last year, although some of those will be in hospital for other reasons. And the UK economy slowed more sharply than expected in February, with storms hitting construction work and supply chain delays holding up output from car makers. The 0.1% expansion during the month followed a robust gain of eight tenths of 1% in January. Inflation, which is squeezing consumer living standards, may provide a further drag on the economy in the coming months. Well, with Parliament on recess for Easter this week, we're going to get some more analysis on the government's energy security strategy. After much delay, the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, launched the policy last week, saying the aim is to supercharge cheap renewables and new nuclear, while continuing to support the UK's North Sea oil and gas industry. Later in the programme, we're going to get the view of campaign group Just Stop Oil. But first, let's hear from free market think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs. Andy Mayer is the energy analysis at energy analyst at the IEA. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Now, you say that the strategy is a wasted opportunity. Why do you say that? Well, fundamentally, what we're facing at the moment is a gas supply crisis. So prices are shooting up everywhere because of the end of the pandemic, first and foremost, those are the prices that residents um, are experiencing now. And secondly, the war in Ukraine, which is going to put even further pressure on those prices by the autumn. 
And what the government strategy does is look at the long term and say, these are the things like nuclear and renewables that matter for our decarbonisation targets by 2050. But it's doing very little or doing things that are pretty anemic right now to deal with the clear and present problem, uh, which is the current shortage of the supply of gas. And what could we do which would alleviate that problem in a, a matter of two or three or four years or so? Okay, so the first thing the government is saying it's doing, which is uh, reversing its previous policy on the North Sea. And what's been happening there, despite um, claiming that they're going for maximum economic recovery in the North Sea, what they've actually been doing is obstructing the development of new fields, fields like Cambo, for example, by telling uh, the developers that there are all these complicated environmental problems that stop them doing the things that they've been doing for 50 years which clearly wasn't the case. It was much more the case the government was pressuring uh, the companies to stop doing that because they thought they could get away with decarbonisation without there being any new oil and gas drilled in the UK. But what they said now is there's going to be a new licensing round. OK, great. That's going to be in six months' time. Not so great. And that could take a further one year to 18 months to actually get anything moving, and even longer than that to get stuff out of the ground under the North Sea which where there's about maybe seven, eight, nine years of provable reserves. On the other hand, they've had a moratorium on onshore, onshore fracking since 2019, and 2019 itself followed about eight years where they were messing around trying to come up with the perfect regulatory regime that would allow fracking to take place, but in a way that would not offend any resident group or environmental group, which is of course impossible. And there, all they said is that in three months' time, the British Geological Society will review the evidence on seismology and come to a conclusion whether or not fracking can take place safely, with or without changes to the regulatory regime. So it's pretty thin stuff. This is not going to fundamentally game-change the UK's ability to provide domestic resources and speaks against the government's own branding of this whole exercise, which is an independent uh, domestic strategy. Green groups are up in arms about the talk of, of, of new fields in the North Sea and possibly fracking you know, on, onshore. But your contention is that we're not really going to get much more of those things. No, and the green groups, to be clear, are entirely hypocritical on this and entirely mad because the choice is not gas or a fantasy of renewables that are immediately available here and now. The choice is between domestic gas or imported gas. And some of that imported gas at the moment is coming from Russia and funding those Russian tanks. And some of it's coming from Saudi Arabia and funding the war in Yemen. There are other alternatives. There is, for example, the United States. And most of that gas is now fracked. So the Green Groups are saying what we would like is uh, to focus on the rainbow unicorn fantasy of clean energy now. Um, but in fact, they're delivering either fracked gas from another country, which clearly will then have a higher carbon footprint than what we do ourselves, or they're funding the wars. So I think the Green Groups need to take a long, hard look at the real world and not live in this fantasy. Isn't the reality that increasing oil and gas supply, whether through fracking or from the North Sea, would do absolutely nothing for bills? You know, we, we pay a global price, we pay the global uh, price of gas, and if we pump a little bit more of that, that's not going to change the global price, is it? Well, we pay a global price for oil and we pay a regional price for gas, and the regional price uh, is strongly influenced by what Russia is doing. Uh, but either way, it's an anti-economic position to take the view that increasing supply does not impact prices. Clearly it does. The only question is how much and whether or not there's anything specifically the UK could do to have a much more immediate effect locally. 
So, for problem. example, if, you are if you're fracking gas in, uh, say, Leicestershire or Derbyshire, you can put that straight into the grid if it's the right quality grade. So that clearly would be used locally, would have an impact on local bills. If you're pumping it into the general grid, yes, some of that could then be exported to the EU, but there um, we're having an impact on European prices and we're also enabling countries like Germany to have an alternative to paying the Russians. But even at a regional level, the, the, the impact on prices would, would be pretty marginal, wouldn't it, from a little bit more fracked gas? Well, the impact on prices fundamentally is a global issue. So it's not just us who will be increasing supply over the next decade. We would expect at some point uh, the major producers uh, that are not Russia to be also increasing their supply. So the question there is, do we want to be getting the taxes on our domestic supplies and using those to pay for the low carbon transition? Or do we want to be paying other people for their domestic regimes? And to, to my mind, this seems like a no-brainer. What on earth are we doing sitting on these vast reserves of oil and gas that we need to use because we need the oil and gas and instead choosing to import it? I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, about green levies. The government says it plans to continue with its with its uh, proposals to to move uh, green levies from uh, electricity to to gas, with the idea that it helps to, uh, to to push people to to removing their gas boilers. Y you think that's a, a bad idea, don't you? I think it's disastrous politics for a start. I mean, we're going into winter when the next price rise kicks in. And at that point, heating starts to dominate power as the necessary resource that we all need to use. So what, what the government is saying here is going into a cold winter with record high energy prices, we are going to transfer some of the costs from power to heating for 85% of the population to send a signal to people that we'd like them to transfer from gas boilers to electric heat pumps. I mean, whatever the merits of that case, it's utter madness to do that now. And it also fundamentally depends on what they're actually transferring. I mean, the reason that the levies are high on electricity is because it is in electricity that we are putting solar power, wind turbines and other uh, low carbon sources onto the grid. Uh, in the heating space, that's not yet the case. So it seems very premature and very unwise and also denies the fact that there are also high taxes on gas further down the supply chain. It may not be sensible politics, but surely you get the, the, the environmental case that, that, that in order to make heat pumps uh, more, more economic, we need to, to change the balance of, of, of cost between gas and electricity. I, I get the case, but it's not the government's job to be picking technology winners, and it's deeply unwise to do so because you end up as a victim of various lobby groups all competing for their own interest. So heat pumps may or may not be the brilliant solution to low-carbon heating for the future. Um, the government saying that they are tends to suggest that they don't believe other things will come along, which is usually prone to be a very unwise assumption. And they're making the same mistake across energy policy. I mean, the nuclear decision, for example, could be seen as betting on a particular technology that's now 25 years old on the assumption that nothing better will be available in 25 years' time. Yeah, talking of which, I wanted your views on nuclear. Actually, the government wants to increase capacity from 7 gigawatts to 24 gigawatts, so a big uh, increase in nuclear capacity. What's the IEA's uh, take on that plan? Well, my, my personal take is I really want nuclear to work because it makes so much sense. I mean, the case there is that we need baseload. And baseload for the UK, roughly speaking, is about 20 gigawatts in the summer when uh, we have the lowest level of power and heating requirements. So you need something reliable, available, that's there, um, that can be used to, fight, to, to power our fundamental systems. And that will go up if we start decarbonising transport and heat. 
The trouble is the nuclear industry never seems to live up to their promises. Well, let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrins has been scanning the politics pages. Leanne, thanks for joining us on the show today. Um, let's kick off with that rumbling story that is the Chancellor's tax affairs. Talk us through the uh, weekend's developments. Ewan, thank you so much. So really, Rishi Sunak has now asked for a formal review into whether he properly declared his financial interest. And he did write a letter to Boris Johnson last night. And the Chancellor is trying to diffuse this row over his tax affairs that really are threatening to derail his whole career, Ewan. And we did find out last week how this all began was on the day that we got that rise in national insurance tax and lots of households are being squeezed financially, it came out that Rishi Sunak's wife um, was actually had non-DOM status here in the UK. So Akshata Murphy was not paying UK taxes on her overseas income. And we also found out that the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, did hold a US green card which he only gave up a year and a half into his current role. So what does this all mean? It means that the he's got to defuse the situation. And this is one reason why he's come out and said, I have asked for this inquiry so it can give people clarity over the choices that I've made and also over my family's financial interests. Mm, incredible how rapidly uh, Sunak's poll ratings have gone from uh, massively positive to uh, pretty negative in the wake of that uh, the spring statement. How secure is uh, Rishi Sunak's job right now? There's been a fair bit of speculation around that uh, perhaps the Prime Minister might be emboldened to move him in some kind of uh, summer reshuffle, maybe. There is speculation of that today, and we have heard that when... Um, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson does come to having a cabinet reshuffle, which will probably come after these local elections that we're going to see next month. So on the 5th of May, lots of people go to the polls to vote in the local elections. And then we'll see what happens when it comes to the reshuffle with the government. But Rishi Sunak could possibly see his job change. We actually don't know that at the moment. It's all just speculation, Ewan. But you're so right. Rishi Sunak, just a few months ago, was the bright star in the Conservative Party. He was seen to as being the the next person to lead them, really, um, after Prime Minister Boris Johnson. However, that um, shine has quickly faded and he's really losing out popularity when it comes to the polls here in the UK. His personal poll ratings are nowhere near as good as they were. And this is because a lot of the reason is a lot of people, as I did mention earlier, there's such a financial squeeze. We're all pretty much feeling it aren't we, when it comes to a rise in national insurance? People are paying the most tax they have done in decades since the 1950s. And also Labour have really pushed this narrative that Rishi Sunak is out of touch with the real living, you know, um, person here in the UK and he's living in a different world in many respects. So once again, pushing that narrative that the Conservatives are just out of touch with the normal people they are meant to be representing. It does feel a bit like uh, football's getting more like politics in this country. One, one, one match, you lose one match and then suddenly you're out on your ear. Um, let's talk about house prices. London, uh, for once, not the laggard. 
Yes, well, actually, they are kind of the laggard still. I'll explain well. We have seen London house prices raise at the fastest rate since 2016. So good news there. That's according to Nationwide. But the national average for houses, Ewan, is still overall better than here in London. So it's 12.6%. So London is seeing a rise from the days of the COVID pandemic where we saw a real slump. So property prices are accelerating in the capital and this is really driven by a shortage of supply and increased demand as people flock back to offices and to social attractions in the capital. I know you and I live here in London and I'm sure you have seen how busy it is just out and about on the streets, in the bars, on the tube. You go everywhere you know it was like a mass exodus from London during COVID because people wanted houses with more spaces they wanted gardens they possibly wanted to be closer to their families but that narrative has now started to change and a lot of businesses of course want their staff back in the offices but guess what activity is the strongest among the most expensive properties so if you're looking for a property between one and two million you might struggle in London because that's what everyone wants at the moment and they're saying that's really because people aren't going to be hit by the financial squeeze that lower income earners will be feeling Mm, better it should be said if uh, you have a house not so good if you're trying to buy one but uh, thanks so much for the update Uh, good stuff thanks uh, Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrins Let's go back to our deep dive into the government's plans for the UK's energy security, as well as a drive for more renewables, especially offshore wind. The government is embracing what it calls the safe, clean, affordable new generation of nuclear reactors, and it wants to make better use of the oil and gas under the North Sea. It shows that those energy fields are going to be given a new lease of life. Well, let's get the view of Graham Buss. He's a spokesperson for uh, the campaign group Just Stop Oil and also a former principal scientist for Shell. Graham, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. So a balance of renewables, nuclear and more exploitation uh, of the North Sea. Are you happy with the government's plans uh, for energy security? No, no, I'm certainly not. But can, can we start this off by just grounding this discussion in the why? Uh, we're we're heading for an unlivable world within the lifetime of a child born today. You just think about that. And I mean, I know the science is complex, and I have a scientific background. I know it's I know what's happening. The science is complex, and it might just be catastrophic rather than apocalyptic. But it's going to be. There's no upside here, and the, and the window of opportunity to stop this is closing fast. It's this decade, and that's why. Just Stop Oil are taking the action they're taking. And that's why the, uh, uh, the government's energy strategy is so flawed. It is true to say, though, that no matter how fast we move, we will need oil and gas over the next few years, won't we? We've got oil and gas already over the next few years. The Tyndale Centre said this year, actually, that the richer parts of the world need to be out of oil and gas by 2034. And the International Energy Agency said last year, last year, point by the way, that we need to stop all new licenses for oil and gas. So that's what Just Up Oil campaign is saying. No new licenses for oil and gas in the UK. And people are taking extreme risks, both you know, their, their education, their jobs, their freedom, even their safety, to make this point that the government should be making. We import uh, diesel from uh, from Russia. We import lots of uh, oil from the Middle East. 
Uh, we import other fossil fuels on on uh, energy intensive tankers coming from the mm. US and, and elsewhere. Surely it's better uh, from a tax and jobs point of view to to produce that that those fossil fuels at home. The the, the North Sea seventy percent of what comes out of the North Sea uh, uh, is oil, and eighty percent of this is exported. That's because, of course, our refineries don't use that kind of crude. That's why we import it. So to say that um, oil in this country provides security is a complete misrepresentation of the truth. And it's quite disingenuous of the government to talk like that. But isn't it better to, to, to create jobs and tax revenue here rather than sending that money to the Middle East? But we pay the market price. We pay the market price for oil in this country. We give essentially free licenses to the oil companies, and the oil companies who exploit the oil in, the, uh, in this country, they sell it to whoever they want to, and they sell it at the market price, and we pay the market price. That's why we're living in a cost-of-living crisis. We're the world's uh, second biggest producer of offshore wind, and we've de- decarbonised faster than any other G7 country. Do you think it's worth giving credit to the government for for, for moving us, for for them doing a better job than most other countries? On oil and gas, on um, wind, I think that's something to be positive about. But it's nothing like fast enough. And look how we've turned it off in recent years, particularly with the onshore. Uh, No, it's not. (laughs) We really need to look at the scale of the problem to understand if it's reasonable to say that the government is doing well. And if you look at the scale of the problem, well, I said at the right up the front here, you have to you have to ground this in the position that we're heading for an unlivable world. And if you make that, if you start from that position, what the government's doing is simply not enough. And I should also point out, of course, that the energy strategy says nothing about demand management. It's so ideologically constrained in its decision making. We you know I know someone in the Treasury, and they tell me that really the government is just firefighting. I mean, look what Lord Stern said. Climate change is the greatest market failure the world has seen. Our economic system does not address extreme risks. And yet what we have is that that's what the economic strategy is grounded in. It's grounded in this notion that you can solve it all just by building more kit. We absolutely can't. The facts on this are really clear. We have to manage. We have to have demand management in that strategy. And essentially there's nothing. Now, if you don't have a shovel-ready solution, then you must... Then you have to do and, less. It's, and by demand management, and you look at the so just sorry, I'll just finish that. If you look at the North Sea, it takes time to make those changes. By the time, I mean, even relatively simple projects like enhanced oil recovery can take eight years. But if you're looking at new wells, they can take decades. So by the time they come on stream, we're going to be, need to be out of oil anyway. We need to husband the resource that we've already got. And just briefly, by demand management, you mean using less energy? Of course, yes. And if you don't have a shovel-ready solution, you have to use less. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.